0: I believe it was Don Devine who coined the phrase, personnel is policy. That is, that the nature, character, and actions of institutions depend on who's running them. And to a great extent, that's true. And in a country that is culturally, and to a large extent demographically still Protestant, and in which evangelicals are the largest, most loyal, and most important voting bloc in the Republican Party, The senior most personnel of conservatism need to be much more Protestant than they currently are. That's the claim that I'm going to go through in this presentation. What's conservatism? One simple definition might be a defense of the organic social order included in that, a defense of the organic elites, existing elites. Think back to the founding of National Review in 1955. What was the organic social order in America? It was Anglo-Protestant. That is to say, Anglo, because our political traditions, culture, and folk ways were our evolution from the British inheritance that we had. And it was Protestant because there was a soft institutionalization of a sort of generic Protestantism at that time. Catholics and Jews were being assimilated into that through what was called the triple melting pot model. But this was still a very demographically, culturally Protestant-dominant Country. Who were the incumbent elites? That was the Protestant establishment. It was the WAS, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants of that era. What was their ideology? It was liberalism, a sort of mid-century vital center consensus liberalism. Well, where did conservatism come from? The people who founded and built conservatives were largely not American Protestants. They were, like William F. Buckley himself, disproportionately Catholic, Jewish, and foreign. This is widely known and widely commented on. In fact, multiple people have observed how unrepresentative of America were the 25 people whose pictures appeared on the dust jacket of George Nash's canonical history of conservatism. One of them was Kevin Phillips, the famous Republican strategist, wrote the emerging uh, Republican majority in 68, advisor to Nixon, coined the term Sunbelt. Here's what he had to say, quote, If one looks at the two dozen portraits on the front cover of George Nash's post-war history of the U.S. conservative movement, a full half are either one, repentant former communists or fellow travelers, two, emigres from Austria, Germany, or some other portion of Central Europe. If one adds yet a third category to the list, a category of arch-traditionalist, upper-middle-class Catholics entranced by tradition, age-old ritual and the 19th century English Catholic gentility of G.K. Chesterton Cardinal Newman et al., the bulk of the stalwarts of the conservative intellectual movement are encompassed. Doctrinalists dominate, people only partially shaped by the American experience. A band of thinkers less likely to command mass loyalties or organize a mass popular movement in the United States could hardly be imagined." Michael Lind, who spoke here at NatCon, I believe I unfortunately missed his panel, Michael Lind candidly described conservatism as essentially a Catholic Jewish project. Here's what he wrote. Quote, the two main varieties of mainstream conservatism, from the founding of National Review to the disastrous Houston Convention of 92, were Buckley-type fusionism and neoconservatism. These corresponded more or less with the Catholic right and the Jewish right. Not all Buckleyites were Catholic, though non-Catholics tended to convert, like Russell Kirk and Lou Lerman, and not all neocons were Jewish. Even so, the difference between fusionists and neocons was as much ethnocultural as ideological," uh, unquote. So I think what we see here is American conservatism is kind of an interesting beast in that rather than emerging from the cultural center to defend sort of the organic culture and elites, it sort of emerged from the edges of the culture and in many cases critiqued the organic system. In this case, specifically the mid century liberalism. That's what they were arguing against. And I think that's kind of just very interesting. And then we also see that the Christian wing of conservatism has long been Catholic dominated. In fact, I would argue it's been Catholic normative. And we see this normativity somewhat in the large number of converts to Catholicism Uh, as highlighted by people like Lind. And that wasn't just historic conservatives like Russell Kirk, that's right up to the present day. Rusty Reno, Ross Douthat, Saurabh Amari, Arthur Brooks, Matthew Schmitz, all Catholic converts. And so I'm not claiming these these conversions were opportunistic for career purposes, I'm sure they were sincere. The key is that there's something about conservatism that is highly resonant with a sort of Catholic register, Catholic register. So these factors really help illuminate a lot of things in conservative history and we often miss the full implications because we don't think about them. Just one quick example, the furor over the publication of William F. Buckley's book, God and Man at Yale. Okay, it wasn't just that the establishment disliked the content of the book, although they didn't. It was that Buckley, who was an Irish Catholic upstart, had been invited into the Wasp Citadel at Yale, skull and bones, and then he turned around and took a big dump on them. That was how he paid them back. Uh, Henry Sloan Coffin, the famous Protestant minister who was the president of Union Theological Seminary, here's what he had to say about God and man at Yale. Quote, Mr. Buckley's book is really a misrepresentation of and is distorted by his Roman Catholic point of view. Yale is a Puritan and Protestant institution by its heritage and he should have attended Fordham or a similar institution." Unquote. I mean you, you know, similar things are happening with, um, with the McCarthy uh, hearings and the reaction to Joseph McCarthy. Uh, so there was a, a panel uh, I think yesterday or maybe it's later today, it called Catholic Patriotism in a Protestant Country. That's a great title because it recognizes we're a, a Protestant country, and it recognizes the role of patriotism in Catholics asserting their American identity. So if you look at the pregame rituals at Notre Dame football, they are just saturated in patriotic flair. Why? They're making a statement. We are Americans too. Catholics are Americans too. And so what you had in the mid-century era, were these rising Ellis Island-era immigrants coming into respectability, asserting their right to be included in American culture. So you've got John F. Kennedy and, you know, McCarthy is another example of that. Of course, they were very, very tight, uh, something people don't think a lot about. And so McCarthy, the Catholic, is, he's essentially turning the tables on the wasps. He's hyper-patriotic and he's saying, look, it's actually you who are betraying your country, who are not being authentically American by betraying your country to the Soviets, which of course he was right about to a a great extent. But that's sort of subtext, very important to understanding uh, some of this. That's conservatism. What about evangelicals and protestants? Um, Again, the elites were mainline protestants and their um, ideology was liberalism. So they were really not attracted to conservatism much at all. Very, very few WASP elites uh, were a part of post-war conservative. There had been a number in pre-war conservatives, and interestingly, but not in post-war conservatism. And the evangelicals uh, were largely Democrats. Uh, people tend to forget that. Jimmy Carter was the first Democrat, uh, uh, evangelical president. Newsweek magazine called 1976 the year of the evangelical. As late as the early 1980s, a plurality of evangelicals identified as Democrats. But under the influence of the new right movement in the 70s and the 80s, there's a real transformation as evangelicals realigned into the Republican Party, became the religious right that we know today, and is effectively still the largest, most important, most loyal voting bloc in the Republican Party. And so uh, we see this, uh, I think there's really two groups here. There's sort of the religious evangelicals, you know, the devout, church attending, Bible-believing, born-again Christians. And then there are the cultural evangelicals. Uh, And these are the people that J.D. Vance described in Hillbilly Elegy. They self-identify as evangelicals, but they don't go to church, and they basically don't live a particularly Christian life, but they think of themselves that way. And so both of these groups are sort of included in here, which I think creates a lot of confusion and a lot of argumentation within the evangelical world. So it's understandable that historically, there wasn't a lot of Protestant leadership in conservatism, Uh, But now that we've got this massive evangelical base, what do things look like? Well, about a year ago, I did an analysis of all the major conservative institutions and major publications. Now, Again, it it wasn't a scientific survey, maybe I wasn't totally comprehensive, but I tried to identify all of them. And I said, looked up the presidents and the editors-in-chief, and I said, what is their religious background? And essentially, very few of them were Protestant and of the ones that were Protestant, essentially all of them were Episcopalians, and I'm not anti-Episcopalian. In fact, I think we really need to focus on reclaiming the virtues of mainline Protestantism, but the Episcopal Church is no longer exactly the Republican party at prayer, and, and these people do not talk about their faith. It was very difficult to find out that many of these people were actually Episcopalians, I had to do a lot of research because, unlike the Catholics, which often center their faith in their public uh, political persona, that's less the case with these Episcopalians, which is why I'm not going to out any of them, lest they get in trouble. There, were, there was, and there's been some turnover since then, but there was, and I think really only still is, one evangelical uh, with, with a position like that. And so, um, one of, the, so one of the kind of themes we're having in kind of this conference and in conversations today is where did conservatism go wrong? So there's a panel on fusionism later today. And I think if I were to go back and look, I would say one of the things was that Protestantism, excuse me, conservatism never really figured out how to crack the code on resonating with the you know, Protestant mainstream culture of America, which dramatically inhibited its ability to attract true elites into the movement, that's been a persistently plagued problem, and also made it hard to come up with policies that truly resonate with the base, apart from, say, some folk libertarianism, which is why conservatism is very vulnerable to populist insurgencies, where people do put forth these things that resonate very much with the base, much more than from the intellectual uh, class. So I believe that if we want to have a conservatism that actually can succeed in America, then it has to be built out of the authentic political and cultural traditions of America. That's why I am not a post-liberal, because our political traditions are, in essence, liberal. That's why integralism is a non-starter in America. It's why I don't like the term nationalism, to be quite honest, because I don't think nationalism is a term that has much It doesn't have much historic valence in America and so I think there's a there's a big kind of this encompasses a lot but I think figuring out how to uh, Engage more in sort of the Protestant uh, things of the country is very important. I'll give two examples of why that is quickly One Josh Mitchell uh, does this. He says why did Marxism fail and wokeism succeed? Marxism talks about things like class that don't resonate in America Wokeism talks about things like sin, guilt, scapegoat that dramatically resonates with the culture, very important. It's also why electorally every single Republican president has been a Protestant. Donald Trump is a larger-than-life sort of Protestant archetype. And so to close the gap, I think the top leadership of conservatism needs to be much more Protestant and evangelical than it currently is. Uh, Now, of course, we're not going back to a mid-century Protestant establishment, nor should we desire that. This is a very diverse country and a very diverse movement. We need Catholics, Jews, etc. in leadership positions, but we ought to also have some Protestants in those positions as well, certainly more than we have today. Uh, This is not just a challenge to conservatism, it's also a challenge to the Protestants. We have not crowned ourselves in glory. There was a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, the scandal being that it doesn't have one, right? So we have not developed people with the aptitudes or interests of being in that sort of intellectual policy institutional leadership. Our talent has tended to go into ministry, go into business or electoral politics. So we cannot continue to outsource things to the Catholics. Uh, We can't keep looking to Charles Taylor to understand secularism or Patrick Deneen to tell us about liberalism, because Patrick Deneen is very anti-Protestant. We need to be able to develop our own resources for doing that. Before we can actually take any of these positions, we have to be qualified. So that's our to-do, and that's one of the reasons that I started uh, American Reformer, which was to start building these networks and institutions to support the development of Protestant intellectuals that can start contributing their fair share to the conservative movement. Thank you.